Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. Week one was, what is deconstruction? Week two, we talked about why people are deconstructing. And this week, I'm going to talk about something called reconstruction. And I know that this phrase reconstruction is not overly popular in every deconstruction community, but in some it is. And I know for some of you who are saying, well, I've never even deconstructed before. Why should I care about reconstruction? Well, I would contend this. If you're somebody who's never went on this path of deconstruction before or within this process, I would recommend that there are times, maybe not on a micro level you should do it, but on a, on, not on a macro level, but on a micro level, it's worth considering. Like, you don't necessarily need to go and tear apart your entire house. But every once in a while, you want to tear apart the bathroom and rebuild it and get some updates. So every once in a while, you want to tear apart the kitchen and rebuild it and give some updates to it. And sometimes as Christians, I think we've turned off our brains. And even if you're not going to deconstruct on a macro level, it's good on a micro level to maybe look at something and say, well, why do I believe that? Or why do I act that way? And not just stop with a simple answer, but really press into it and search it out and think about it. Like, do I hold this belief because it's well-informed and I've thought about it and considered it, or I just hold this belief because some speaker said something about it 20 years ago. Like, why do I believe this? Why do I act this way? Why do I see things this way? And to really dig into that and have conversations with people about it and do some reading about it. So I would say that deconstruction and reconstruction, even if it's not on a macro level, on a micro level is a healthy process for everyone to engage in. But then for those who are in this deconstruction process of investigating and dissecting and pulling things apart. First thing I want to say is this. I am not saying that the first thing you need to do as soon as possible is go reconstruct. You need to do it right now. I'm not telling you when. I'm just saying it's something that you should consider at some point in time. Also, I want to frame what I mean by reconstruction. And I'm going to frame that with a scene from the movie Batman Begins because I cannot get through a series without talking about Batman. I love Batman. And by the way, did anybody see the new Batman trailer yesterday for the, for the Robert Pattinson movie? Or what was even cooler was the sneak peek for the new Flash movie where Michael Keaton is narrating it as Batman. Who would have thought that we could see Michael Keaton come back as Batman? Like, I'm hoping this turns into a Batman Beyond thing or something because it was pretty sweet. And some of you are just completely done with this right now. But, but anyways, and Batman Begins. Bruce is amongst his home that has been completely destroyed. If you don't know who Bruce is, Bruce is Batman. Batman is Bruce. And his home has been completely destroyed. And his love interest, Rachel, says to him, what will you do? And Bruce looks at Rachel and says, rebuild it just the way it was, brick by brick. And then Bruce's butler, Alfred, looks at him and says, just the way it was, sir? And Bruce says, yeah, why? And Alfred says, I think that this could be an opportunity to make some adjustments around the foundation, something like that. I'm not saying it word for word. He said, this is a time to make some adjustments around the foundation. And Bruce says, oh, in the southeast corner, because that's where the Batcave is. And Alfred says, precisely, sir. You see, sometimes when this word reconstruction comes up, I think what the assumption is, is that people are asking you to go on the Bruce Wayne journey of reconstruction. To just rebuild everything just the way it was brick by brick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know you went through this entire process, but just come back to exactly where you were, exactly what you thought, exactly the way things are. And so I want to be abundantly clear that when I'm talking about reconstruction, I'm not talking about the Bruce Wayne form of reconstruction. I'm talking about the Alfred form, that there might be some changes to the foundation, that you didn't go through this process for nothing, 
that you didn't start asking these questions and investigating and dissecting for nothing. But there's actually something to this where you will begin to rebuild in some way, but it's not just to be brick for brick. There will be some changes along the way. And then secondly, with this conversation, when I began putting together this series and and researching over the past year, I've been listening almost on a weekly basis to this podcast called You Have Permission, which I I thoroughly enjoy. And the host, Dan Koch, is amazing. And Dan Koch, I would say, is one of the leading voices in the deconstruction community, at least from my perspective of what I know. And I emailed Dan Koch and I said to him, hey, do you have any suggestions of books that I could read that really capture the essence of those who are going through the process of deconstruction? I didn't know if he'd email me back, but he did, which was really nice of him. I was thankful for that. And he gave me some recommendations of some books to read. And one of them I've already mentioned the past couple of weeks, but I want to let you know a little bit more about it. This book is called Religious Refugees. It's written by a guy named Mark Gregory Karras. And Karras is now a therapist. Karras himself has went through a process of deconstruction. And now he, he kind of helps those who are walking through deconstruction. And in one of the chapters of his book, he talks about the eight stations of deconstruction. And I would love to go over all eight at some point in time, and maybe we will in the future. But for the purpose of this message today, I want to talk about one specific station that he mentions. And this station he calls, it's station six, Angstville. And here's how he describes those who find find themselves in Angstville. He said they are prone to engage in angry social media jabs at Christians, the Bible, God, or whatever else gets in the way of their efforts to convince others of the terror and toxicity of Christianity. People in this situation are unable and unwilling to move on. They miss out on the opportunity to use their anger in adaptive ways that contribute to healthier living for themselves and others. And so I would like to speak to those who maybe you found yourself deconstructing in that space before where it's one, there's a desire just to be hostile. Karis goes on to say that uh, wounded people wound people, you know, the cliche hurt people hurt people. And if you find yourself in this space, you're continually driven by cynicism. And then he goes on to say this, this is a longer quote, but we're going to get through this together. He said, in some ways, it's unfair to portray people as having a choice to move on from this station. Really, who has the right to determine the expiration date of a person's natural grief process? Who's to say that someone has been angry or cynical for long enough and now it's time to move on? I don't think anyone does. Nevertheless, after personally watching some folks spend years rehashing traumatic events and grimly judging others, including God, it's clear that some other dynamic is going on. There comes a point in which they may be choosing a primary identity as one who is victimized. Contrast this with those who identify as victims, but then have the bravery to heal and overcome the past for their own sake and for the sake of others. Last sentence, contrast that with those who identify as victims, but have the bravery to heal and overcome the past for their own sake and for the sake of others. Now, once again, hear me clearly. I'm not saying that if you're in the process that you need to reconstruct today, now's the time to do it. But what I am saying is it's something worth considering. 
to have the bravery to move forward, to have the bravery to say, I'm going to consider healing. And so my goal would be, is with this message specifically, is if you are in this process of deconstructing, that maybe at one point in time, this message or some of the stuff that's said here would be a helpful resource. It may not be today. It might be today. It might be in the future. But this would be something that all of us consider. What does it mean for us to deconstruct, to reconstruct, to rebuild, to see things differently? Because here's what I do know. Whether you're consciously engaged with it or not, you will reconstruct at some point in time. You will begin to just by the way life moves, either get swept away by life and begin to reconstruct based subconsciously just because of the movement of life, or you can be consciously engaged with your reconstruction process. And so my appeal to you, my plea to you would be that you would be engaged with this, that you would consider this. And if you're someone who's been in church, that you would occasionally be open to the idea of deconstructing and reconstructing and seeing things anew. So here we're going to go. The first, the, the four things that I would say are benefits of reconstructing. The first one is this. Reconstructing requires us to continue to walk in humility. Reconstructing requires us to continue to move into a space of humility. And all of us should desire to be humble in some way. I don't think anybody here is saying, oh, you know, I want to be known as a person who's closed off or a person who's a know-it-all. We all should in some way desire humility. I think we would at least, or we should. I would hope so. But maybe you don't. That's okay. But I, I mean, that's for you to figure out. But we, I would hope that we would all desire to go on a path of humility. And I talked about this in week one, that as you go into this process of deconstruction, that you would be alert and that you would not become what you hate that you would not become what you rebelled against. Because for many in this process, you deconstructed because there was something you didn't like. Maybe it was self-righteous people, or maybe it was arrogant people, or maybe it was, hey, I felt like I couldn't ask them questions. But there are some who I've met who have went on this journey, and now I feel like I'm talking to the same person that I talked to over there, but it's just with different views. And just as much as we in the church can have echo chambers, the deconstruction community can have echo chambers as well. And reconstructing says, I am going to come out of this own little kingdom that I've constructed and built for myself, and I am going to step out again and be in a place of vulnerability and be in a place of humility and begin to reconstruct. I'm going to begin to consider some things again. I'm not just going to function within the realm of my own confirmation biases, because we all have them. None of us are exempt from confirmation biases. Every one of us has, and I have them. We all have them. And I think it would be appropriate for each and every one of us to be reminded of the words of Jesus, no matter who you are or no matter what your worldview is, these words are helpful for every single one of us. In Matthew 7, 5, Jesus said, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is a helpful reminder for every single one of us that it's so easy to always want to point the finger at everybody else. You did this, you did that, you did this, you did that. But sometimes the finger needs to be redirected to here. What can I do differently? Am I trying to remove the speck out of someone else's eye and I have a log within my own? And I know I've said this here before, but it's something that I have to be reminded of. And I think it's something that people within my generation have to be reminded of. Those who find themselves in this millennial age group is that we are not the only sinless and perfect generation. We don't have it all figured out. We're not the ones who are going to create utopia. Someday, somebody is going to look back at the work that we have done, whether it's in the church or outside of the church, and they are going to be just as critical as we have been at times as those who've come before us. 
And so we have to reconstruct into a spot of humility and recognize, you know what? I don't have it all figured out all the time. What can I do differently? How can I change? How can I be a part of making the world and society a better place? Reconstruction requires a journey of humility, but humility puts us in a place of vulnerability, which can be intimidating for every one of us. But it causes us to get outside of our echo chamber and begin to rebuild again. Secondly, reconstruction requires work, but it's work that is worthwhile. It requires work, but it's not just work for, with, you know, with no purpose in mind. It's a work that is worthwhile. And the idea of, I deconstructed, I, I put all this down, and, and now I have to, re, like, just be straight up. If, if you genuinely deconstructed, not only did it take a lot of emotional pain, a lot of emotional toil, but it also took a lot of work. You've been reading, you've been listening, you've been, you've been growing. It took a lot of work to get to this point, to break things down and to get to this spot. And so now to be at the point where you're going to genuinely consider reconstructing, it's like, oh my gosh, to go through all that work again. To, to be listening again, to be asking questions again, to be having uncomfortable conversations again. It takes work. But it's a work that is worthwhile because if deconstruction is tearing things down and then sitting among the rubble, reconstruction is picking, back the, picking the pieces back up and finding where things fit. It's rebuilding a foundation to build on and it's consciously choosing to engage in that process as opposed to subconsciously just saying, I don't know, things will happen eventually. And I know I keep using all these metaphors here, but another metaphor I would use for reconstruction is it's like almost stepping back into the ring to, to wrestle. Or, or and I don't know nothing about wrestling. I tried it in sixth grade and it didn't go very well. And some people think it's disgusting, but just follow along with me. Like, so uh, the, the idea of wrestling, of stepping into the ring, of I would ask that you would consider this in wrestling with your faith or in wrestling in this process of reconstruction. Consider these words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Paul is making a powerful statement here. He's saying that the Christianity that we all know, the, the way of following Jesus, that was not built on the people that hurt you, it was not even built on the people that have been good to you. The Christianity that we have was not built on that doctrine or belief or that concept or that idea that you can't seem to get around. What we have is built on an event that changed the world. This event that ushered in new creation and new life and a new perspective and new opportunities. And Paul says, if that event of the resurrection didn't happen, then all of it is worthless. All of it is futile. So when you begin to reconstruct, if you look at it as a wrestling match, it's going to be tempting to want to always get into the ring with that idea or that concept or those people that hurt you. And don't get me wrong, it, there's a healthiness to sometimes getting into the ring with that and doing that. And there might be a temptation to just want to get into the ring with those beliefs and those concepts and those ideas that you just can't seem to wrap your mind around. And it's tempting to do that. And it can be good to do that as well. But I would just make an ask that you would also consider just step into the ring with Jesus himself. Start to ask, who is Jesus? Because according to this, he something happened. This 
event happened, this resurrection happened that changed the world. And if that actually happened, then that changes everything. And so while it could be tempting to only ever be in the ring with all these other things, I would ask that you would pursue him in a sense, that you would ask, who is Jesus? That you would step into the ring with him and that you would find in that space that maybe, just maybe, you will find him or maybe he will find you. And it's work and it takes time and it can be hurtful as well, but it's a work that is worthwhile. Next. Reconstruction requires faith. And I know that this one might sound kind of strange or weird, but just hear me out on where I'm going with this. Sometimes I get concerned because I think about, you know, what are we building for the next generation? I know I'm 28. I don't even have my own kids yet. And I'm always thinking like, what are we building for the next generation? And sometimes my concern is, is that we're not building a culture or a society of faith, but we're, driven, we're building a culture and society that is driven by doubt. And doubt is a very healthy thing. Doubt can be a very good thing. Doubt can, it can be what stretches you and grows you. So please don't hear me. I'm not one of these people who are saying, oh, you know, doubt's a good thing, and I only think you can doubt certain things. No, doubt in and of itself can be a good thing. But doubt when it begins to truly actually not be doubt anymore, but it becomes cynicism or suspicion, that's when it becomes unhealthy. Because if we create a society that is driven by suspicion and cynicism, we are going to erode trust within our communities. And Karis had something to say about this as well, about doubt specifically. When you're in this Angstville station, he says, doubt becomes cool, hip, habitual, a part of our identity. Doubt becomes, in fact, our new faith. Keith Giles writes, uncertainty is the only thing you feel certain about. Doubt is the only thing you believe in. Questions are the only answer. The freedom that comes from not giving a crap anymore is intoxicating. We find ourselves on the outside looking in, and even if it's a little bit painful, it starts to feel like home. Too much doubt limits the amount of beauty and love that people can take in. How can anyone heal if they cannot let in the good? So that would be my question. How could anyone heal if they cannot let in the good? That when we live in a doubt that is just driven by suspicion and cynicism, we will miss out on the goodness of God. We will miss out on the goodness of humanity. We will miss out on the goodness that we are invited into. Faith in God, but even the next level, faith in other people is how we can come together as humanity and build a better future to be a part of building a new creation as God has called us to do. And lastly, reconstruction moves us beyond self-concern. This is definitely a bias of mine and a perspective that, I, that I've inherited and continue to kind of push in some ways, but reconstruction moves us beyond self-concern. And I'm confident that whenever we get in any echo chamber for too long, when we get into any confirmation bias for too long of a period of time, what we begin to do is we begin to insulate and we begin to just build up walls and worry about, am I protecting me? Am I looking out for me? And this happens in the church, outside of the church, deconstructing, not deconstructing. But for those who are in this process, to reconstruct means I am going to move out of that spot that maybe 
did not start as a spot of self-concern, but has become that because of some of the hurt that you picked up along the way. But reconstruction pushes you out of self-concern and puts you back into a spot of exploring. It can be scary because it feels vulnerable once again, because you're beginning to gauge and become into different conversations once again. And for this one, I like to bring up the point of this play that my wife is obsessed with called Hamilton. She's listening to the music all the time. I actually really enjoyed it. I don't normally like musicals, but I really enjoyed Hamilton. And in the play, you have Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. And uh, Aaron Burr's character is like a shapeshifter. He just goes with whatever is best for him. And Alexander Hamilton is a man who's driven by conviction, even to his own detriment at times. And part of what they, what Aaron Burr's whole thing is of how he approaches different situations is to uh, uh, smile less, talk more, don't let them know what you're against or what you're for, something like that. That's the way he sees the world. Uh, oh, no, wait, talk less. So that's it. Talk less, smile more. Sorry. Some of you are like, how could he not know that? I'm sorry. I listened to Weird Al Yankovic, not Hamilton, and a little bit of Bo Burnham. But anyways, so talk less, smile more, don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. That's the perspective of Aaron Burr, that he just becomes a shapeshifter based off of his own self-concern or whatever is easiest for him in the moment. Eventually, I think it's Hamilton who says to Burr, if you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? And this is what happens when we become too isolated in any group and we don't let anybody truly know what we think about anything and we're just looking out for self-preservation and we begin to live in the space of, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And, and don't get me wrong. Saying I don't know in a conversation can be a really good thing. I need to learn how to say it more often. I always have to say something. Sometimes saying I don't know is a good thing. It, it does show humility. But if your worldview becomes, whenever I'm in a conversation, because this has happened with me with some people who are in the space of deconstruction, everything is I don't know. Well, I don't know, I don't know. If, you're, if your morals and your convictions and your ethics are just, oh, I don't know, I'm not going to say anything then you've allowed yourself to come into a space of self-concern because you're not willing to really put yourself out there and stand for nothing. And if you stand for nothing, what will you fall for? And for this, I want to take us to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, where he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake... He is the one who will save it. This is why I will always advocate for the way of Jesus. Because Jesus himself did not just call us to take up our cross for his sake and for the sake of others. He himself did that for us. Jesus did the most selfless, most, most like, hey, most selfless thing that you could possibly do in serving humanity by giving his life for us. And then he calls us to do the same. And when you consider reconstructing around the way of Jesus, it's saying, I'm going to go out of self-concern and, and live my life into a greater concern to take up my cross, not just for my sake, but for the sake and the good of others, for the good of humanity. And this is where I think we get a little bit confused sometimes. And this happens once again in all circles. I think that, we th that the assumption is, is that we should feel comfortable in our convictions. The convictions I have about the world and, and citing how I see, I should just feel comfortable about that. And I would say that we shouldn't feel comfortable in our convictions. We should feel challenged by our convictions. 
Our convictions shouldn't just be something that make us, oh, it feels good about me all the time. I'm in my own little world. I, I'm looking out for me. No, our, our convictions should be what challenge us to live beyond ourselves. Our convictions should be what challenge us to think of others before ourselves. Our convictions should be what drive us to a greater call to live beyond ourselves, to carry up our cross, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of others. And reconstruction will bring us out of our own little rubble, our own little kingdom that we have established and begin to see a greater vision that is beyond anything that we could have ever have seen within our own limited space. So I have two closing questions. The first one is this, and it's just something you can ask yourself. I'm going to ask you and you can write it down to ask yourself, but what foundation are you building on? Ask, ask, ask yourself, what foundation am I building on? Because the foundation that you're building on is a foundation that you could be passing on to someone else. And I love what Jesus says in Luke chapter six. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundations and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. There are two things from this passage that I want us to consider when we ask ourselves the question, what foundation are we building on? I shared with you in week one that according to the Deconstruction Network, 2,700 people leave the American church every single day. But 78% of them still have an interest in faith. My conviction, and this might sound a little crazy to some people, but my conviction is this, is that the reason that there's still an interest in faith, even when someone has moved on or passed or outside of the church, is because that when you went on this process of dissecting and investigating that you may have found that people were wavering, that your community was wavering, that maybe things around you were hurtful or wavering or falling apart. But Jesus himself is unwavering. And he is that nagging. He is that thing that is still tugging at your heart, that is still tugging at your mind, that is making you say, ah, there's something still, there's something beyond this. And what you're finding in that space is that there is a rock who is Jesus, who is unwavering. And I even love this concept here that Jesus says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. He said, he who hears my words and acts on them. Here's what it's like. Jesus is challenging us. Jesus is almost taunting us. Jesus is saying, hey, I know all of this other stuff may have happened. And he loves us in that. He walks with us through that. But he's also saying, just try me. He's almost taunting us forward, just try me. Try the way of life that I have set before you. Try the example that I have set for humanity. Try living life the way in which I ask humanity to live it and see what happens. And then Jesus bets on himself and says, if you follow the way in which I have laid before you, you will find that there is a rock and a stability there that is unwavering. 
Jesus invites us to do that. So what foundation are you building on? I'm going to invite the band forward in this time to close us out, but I have one closing question as well. This is the second question. And while I myself openly admit I've never fully been through like an overhaul deconstruction process. I've had little things that I've deconstructed and rebuilt. I've had crises of faith before. But one of the questions that I continually come back to, and maybe this will be helpful for to you, I hope it is. So I've asked this question. Where else would I go? Where else would I go? It's a question that Peter asks in John chapter 6. Things are getting a little intense around the movement of Jesus, and Jesus is talking about uh, some different stuff. And it seems as if some people are, you know, people are leaving him. And it seems as if the reason they were leaving is because his teaching was getting to be a little bit radical. And he starts saying things like, hey, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people are thinking, is this cannibalism? Like, this is, it doesn't say that specifically, but I imagine that's what people were thinking. I mean, I don't know what you would do if if I, hey, eat my flesh. That's just a little strange. But Jesus was speaking metaphorically. And um, some people are abandoning. They're like leaving. They're like, this is, this is just getting a little bit weird because it was just a little intense for them. And Jesus turns to the 12. Look at this in John chapter 6, verses 66 through 68. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom else shall we go? So when you go on this process, when you go on this journey, ask yourself that question, who else will I go? Or where else have I went? Or who else have I gone to? To be willing to consider Where am I now? What foundation am I building now? And what foundation am I building for the next generation? What foundation am I leaving to those who are going to be coming after me? And if I'm not going to build that foundation on Christ, who else will I go to or where else have I went? And I will always stand here and advocate for the way of Jesus. And I know that there's nuances and all those things within it, but I do believe and I take him at his word that he is the rock and that there is nowhere else to go because it is him. There is life eternal. And that's not just about quantity of life. It's about the quality of life that we can experience now in him. And so if you've been in this process, I would ask that at some point in time, it doesn't have to be today, it doesn't have to be tomorrow, but at some point in time, you'd consider reconstruction. Because reconstruction will take the rubble and you'll begin to rebuild and find a foundation. That you'd ask yourself this, what foundation am I building on? What foundation am I establishing for those who are coming after me? Where else will I go? Who else will I go to? Where have I went? Start to ask these questions and ask yourself. Everyone should ask themselves this in church, out of church, deconstructing, not deconstructing, wherever you find yourself. Have I set up a life or am I living a life that is driven by self-concern or am I living a life where I have taken up my cross, not just for my own sake, but for the sake of others. And I'm living in the reality of a greater concern. Am I living in self-concern or am I living in a greater concern?